This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 14th of May 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello, I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up in the next half an hour, Charles Hecker chews through the front pages with me. Plus, Andrew Tuck is back with his weekend column. It's a perfect picture, and it's hard to think that this is 60 years ago, that these people are long dead. They should surely be able to walk out of that picture, be here, and they wouldn't have to change a thing to be the chicest people in the room right now. Well, a lot of chic people in the room right now because we get Eurotastic today. We'll be joining Fernando in Turin ahead of uh, tonight's uh, competition and Sean Pattenden will be joining me in the studio to tell me about her live Eurovision draw. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. First, though, here are the headlines. Israeli police officers charged at Palestinian mourners carrying the coffin of Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akleh on Friday before thousands led her casket through Jerusalem's old city in an outpouring of grief and anger over her killing. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un said today the spread of COVID-19 had thrust his country into great turmoil and called for an all-out battle to overcome the outbreak, while 21 new daily deaths were reported amongst people with fever. North Korea made an unprecedented admission of its first COVID outbreak this week and imposed a nationwide lockdown after reporting no cases since the start of the pandemic two years ago. And US President Joe Biden said on Friday a first summit in Washington with leaders from the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN, marked the launch of a new era in the relationship between the United States and the ten-nation bloc. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Now it's time to have a browse through this morning's papers and I'm pleased to say joining me in the studio, Charles Hecker, Senior Partner at Control Risk. Good morning to you. Good morning, Georgina. Uh, now, Charles, you are quite a frequent Twitterer, tweeter. It's one of my very few addictions, yes, I have to confess. Uh, but everybody that uses Twitter, of course, is in a bit of a frenzy uh, about who actually owns it and what happens to it next. Yeah, well, if you're looking through the weekend papers, you really cannot overlook a story that just leaps off the front page of the FT's weekend edition. There's an awful lot of very thick, dark ink that says Musk puts $44 billion Twitter deal on hold over spam bot numbers. That's not a phrase that you see very often in newspaper headlines. Um, and by the way, the FT, as, as a sort of judgment of how important this story is, the FT has five reporters just on this one piece on the front page. And as everybody knows, Elon Musk, who is also the owner of Tesla, the electrical vehicle company, and SpaceX, the rocket company, and general all-around media bad boy, I think we can say fairly safely, he wants to buy Twitter. He already owns a fairly substantial chunk of the company and was invited to join the board of directors. And first he said yes, and then he said no, and now he's decided he wants the whole thing. Uh, he's kicking the tires. And the reason why he's put the purchase on hold, or at least the most ostensible, the public reason, and we'll get to that in two seconds, that he's put the deal on hold is he wants to confirm that all of the people who use Twitter, like you and me, 
are real. Twitter says that less than 5% of its users, quote unquote, are bots, which means that they're artificially generated by computers. But, you know, Musk wants to know that there are real people there and Twitter can't say with any certainty that those numbers are 100% accurate. The speculation around all of this is that Musk, because this is really a mating ritual with Twitter as much as it is a traditional M&A deal, that Musk is trying to manipulate the price because Twitter's stock tanked the minute that he said that he put the deal on hold. So he might be able to spend a lot less than $44 billion buying this thing. Mm. And of course, what also happened was the minute he expressed some doubt about it, Tesla's shares rose. <laughs> and the other speculation, of course, is that none of this particularly matters to him. He just wanted a bit of attention. So this is why we call him media bad boy, uh, because a lot of his public behavior is or judged to be attention grabbing and that it's mostly not about Twitter. It's not about Tesla. It's not about anything else. It's about Elon Musk. Um, the reason why Tesla's shares rose is that there's been a concern in the marketplace that Tesla might share or carry some of the burden in this acquisition and that um, if Twitter ever comes under pressure, then, then Tesla would come under pressure. And I suppose shareholders in the vehicle company saw a bit of relief in all of this. Absolutely. Uh, right. We are going to cross over to Andrew Tuck now for his weekend column. Now, he's in Parma, uh, where I think he has a weekend home, uh, and he recorded that from there. So there is, um, there's quite a, 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 there's a bit of background noise, but I think it's rather charming. You kind of get to hear the, 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 the sounds of Parma in the background. Uh, but he's talking all about uh, photo London and images and how important those are. Here he is. On Wednesday, it just rained and rained, and so I put off visiting the opening of Photo London all day. One of the pleasures of going to the annual fair is standing around in the courtyard of Somerset House. After you've surveyed the booths, wondered whether you should spend your partner's life savings on a compulsive purchase, and just catching up with fellow fair friends. Lingering al fresco, however, requires sunshine, preferably a spritz in hand and the weather was not playing ball. But seeing as a big contingent of Team Monocle had been braver than me and put on raincoats and headed over throughout the afternoon, I finally layered up and joined them. And bingo, I timed it for just when the damp day gave away to clear sky evening. Matt, our photography director, was there with his team, along with Jack, our new editorial assistant, and our book squad. Oh, and also Diego from retail. One of the reasons for our presence en masse was the very quiet public debut of the Monocle Book of Photography in the pop-up bookshop that's being run by our publisher partners, Thames and Hudson. And, in a nice coincidence, the space is being managed by Rania Naufal, who used to run Paper Cup, a beautiful bookshop and cafe in Beirut that we often wrote about until the port explosion of 2020 ripped her store apart and broke her will to stay. An aside, this week the Lebanese designer Rana Salam also came by Midori House and told me that she has also packed up her Beirut life and is now something of a nomad, not sure where and how to settle. And our friend, the food advocate Kamal Muzawak, is now in Paris. He'll be on stage at our Quality of Life conference in a few weeks to explain why. So much talent forced to find places to shelter away from greed and corruption and all the damage that that causes. But back to Rania. The woman is a force of nature and a very good seller too. 
there was just one of our books left when I arrived. And there was another coincidence at play here because one of the big photo essays in our book that she is doing so well at shifting was shot by Maria Klenner in Beirut after the very blast that had dislodged Rania. Having been a modest part of our photography book's journey to bookshelf, it's made me even more aware of the power of photography done well. And not just the imagery of conflict, but even of fashion, architecture, portraiture. Yet, what makes a great picture, one that keeps pulling you in, that can resonate across the years, is harder to pin down. As the team gathered potential stories for our book, it was funny how one story still moved you, while another seemed to be of its moment, a time capsule, unable somehow to break free. And that's the same feeling I had walking around Photo London. There are wonderful works here, many dating back decades that snare you, but others that look destined to be background fodder in some corporate office lobby to fade very soon. Matt has written this week about Frank Horvat's picture of Carol Lobrovicho, and he's right about it being so damn fresh even now. Horvat is a subject of one of the key exhibitions at Photo London. But, and sorry to encroach on his territory, there's another Horvat that does a similar trick. It was shot in 1962 in Rome for Harper's Bazaar and is of the author Alberto Moravio and the model China Machado. The first woman of colour to appear in a US fashion magazine, a Givenchy house model in the 50s. Moravia is dressed in a three-piece suit and holding a fat, sleeping cat. Machado, hair coiffed in an immaculate twin set, is standing behind him. Both are looking away from the lens. It's a perfect picture, and it's hard to think that this is 60 years ago, that these people are long dead. They should surely be able to walk out of that picture, be here, and they wouldn't have to change a thing to be the chicest people in the room right now. Well, perhaps they'd have to let the kitty wander off. It's then, it's also now. This is the stuff that intrigues. How do we capture time in both words and pictures so that they don't fade? How do we stop the past or places that we don't know well from seeming to be so distant, so alien? How do we leave something in our wake that will serve others well? Big stuff, but I hope that some of this fretting has helped make our book as good as I think it is, and also allowed us to tell and retell stories of people from Beirut to Busan in a way that allows them to appear able to walk off the page and confront us and our emotions all afresh. Many thanks there to Andrew Tuck, who recorded that piece in Palma, where he is, I believe, this weekend. Now, speaking of amazing photographs, the New York Times has a huge picture uh, of uh, Swedish uh, forces uh, in a forest. And the headline is, after 200 years of neutrality, Sweden weighs joining NATO. Now, this has been a huge story all week, Charles. That's right. There's a very thoughtful piece um, inside on page three of the weekend international edition of the New York Times. And in the print edition, it's got a very clever headline that says, Nudged Nearer to NATO. And this is a piece primarily about Sweden's journey, I guess you could say, towards joining NATO. But there's also a little bit about what's happening with neighboring Finland, also joining the alliance, and then anticipations about the reaction from 
Russia. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because even after the beginning of the conflict, the Swedish prime minister said that Sweden would not join NATO. But there has been a fairly rapid about face in Swedish public opinion and also in Finnish public opinion on the virtues of, of joining the alliance. And while Finland has already publicly declared that it will join and the papers in the mail, um, Sweden is, is, is right behind it and will soon also likely make an official announcement. So what are the regional implications of this, Charles? Well, so today, Russia is going to turn off the electricity to Finland. Um, and, and I think it's wise to anticipate that Russia will continue to apply significant non-military, for the time being, pressure to Finland and to NATO. Um, so that's one regional impact, is that Russia will retaliate in one way or another. It's cutting off oil and it's cutting off electricity to Finland. These are small amounts of Finland's overall energy mix, and they'll cover that without too much difficulty. Another regional implication, basically, is that Sweden... It, you know, the story discusses this sort of has to join NATO if Finland does, because then it'll be the only Nordic nation that's not in the alliance. And you really can't sort of stick out that way and be the only one of a region that is incredibly tightly knitted together economically and politically. Um, Sweden has to join, essentially, if, if Finland goes in. Um, and, and so um, the other thing is that in the entire NATO region, um, Sweden and Finland's membership would have to be approved by all 30 member nations. And Erdogan of Turkey um, has said, you know what, I don't think this is such a good idea. And he's already positioning himself as the deal maker in all of this. And everybody's wondering, what does he want? Yeah, abs absolutely. Now, the other big worry uh, for everyone is what happens in the intervening time between saying that they're going to join and actually then being protected by Article 5. That's right. Finland and Sweden would be incredibly exposed in that period, the gray period between saying we want to join and then actually joining the alliance. And so they are seeking assurances from NATO that, you know, don't worry, we've got your back while this all happens. But to the rescue... British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who in trips this week, both to Sweden and to Finland, has said, no matter what happens, we will support you. Um, the, the deal is vague for now. We don't know what would trigger British support. We don't know what kind of support that would actually be. Um, but as one of the sort of Global Britain initiatives post-Brexit, and also to cover up perhaps for a tiny bit of domestic political trouble hmm. um, at home, uh, the British Prime Minister has issued a security guarantee to both of those countries. Yeah, quite uh, uh, very interesting, particularly yeah, looking at his timing and, and, as you say, his worries here at home. Exactly right. Uh, now, some worries for Britain too on the Eurovision front because we've <laughs> traditionally done very badly. So I think what we need to do, Charles, now is to gird our loins because we are about to get Eurotastic. Monocle's May issue features our 2022 Design Awards, where we celebrate the world's best architects, urban planners, graphic designers, furniture makers and more, carefully selected by our editors and design correspondents. Elsewhere in the issue, we head to northern Norway to witness NATO's military exercises and to Georgetown to explore how Malaysia's tropical tech hub is booming. We also look into the draw of Japanese manga in France and meet Iceland's duck feather foragers who are behind some of the world's highest quality down. All of that plus our regular round of reviews, fashion inspiration, travel tips and more. Order your copy of Monocle's May issue today or subscribe to get instant access online.
It's Eurovision tonight, the final, and uh, in uh, Monocle, uh, Monocle Towers at Midori House, uh, with the atmosphere is electric because we're all huge Eurovision fans, but I'm quite sure the atmosphere in Turin is even more electric. That's where we head now. Fernando Augusto Pacheco, our uh, Eurovision desk chief, is there. Fernando, good morning to you. Good morning. Buongiorno from Turin, from very sunny Turin. The weather has been amazing here, I have to say. And it's interesting, Georgina, I heard you talking before about the UK. There's lots of talk here, actually, that the UK would do very well this year. And I kind of believe in that as well. I'm not saying they're going to be the winner, but there is something about their entry this year. That's extraordinary because, of course, one big upset has been Ireland. Yes. And in fact, uh, when I was at the second semi final, I was sat with two Irish girls and I, and I said, good luck to you. But, you know, it wasn't there. I have a feeling, I, I, I thought the track was great, uh, but, you know, there's, I think the performance could have been a little bit better, the staging. I kind of understand why it didn't go through, but the song was fun. So it was a little bit of a shame in a way. But don't worry, the UK would do well. I'm certain they will end in the top five. I might regret those words tomorrow, but let's see. So who are your predictions? Well, my predictions is... I think Ukraine will still win. Uh, you know, it's a great song. There is indeed the sympathy vote. We can't deny that. And even some uh, contestants said that they want Ukraine to win, including a Sand Rider from the UK, the Rasmus from Finland. I think Spain can surprise us. But to be honest, I see a lot of Spanish fans in the streets. I think the Spanish and the Swedes, they are the biggest cont contingents here uh, in Turing. And they love Chanel. And Chanel gives this kind of classic performance, incredible outfits, kind of a amazing dance. She is definitely a one to watch. And also Sweden, of course, Cornelia Jacobs with her very emotional Hold Me Closer. Fernando, your line's a little bit dodgy and we know that you've got a lot of preparation to do for tonight. So we're going to let you go and wishing you uh, just all the best of luck for tonight. I'm sure that you're going to have a completely fantastic time. Thank you so much and, yeah, very much look forward for tonight. Well, joining me in the studio is Sean Pattenden, who is a commentator on all things pop and music. She's also uh, an illustrator, she's an author, she's a music journalist uh, and uh, she is a brilliant artist. <laughs> Sean, tell Thank us you. how all those things come together in one <laughs> grand culmination of your talents this evening. Well, I don't know the how, but I know the what. <laughs> I don't know how it all happened, but for the ninth year I'm doing what I call Eurovision Live Draw, which is live painting the acts as they happen on Twitter while watching the TV and raising money for the British Red Cross Ukraine appeal. Um, and if you follow my Twitter, you may find A, quite full on. It's not usually going to be like it is tonight, but you will see everything drawn. And the thing is that if you do donate via the Just Giving page, you get a painting. So the first 26 people will get a painting. I send them out next week. It's admin hell, um, but that's part of the thing. You get a postcard size watercolour. And I have people who've collected them over the years who it's have a wall of them. Yeah. But so that means you're having to draw the act within three minutes because that's yes, the timeline. Absolutely, it's under three minutes. Um, and what I do is a tiny bit of homework, so I've got an idea of how many people will be on stage, but not too much, otherwise it completely ruins the fun. So there are literally twenty-six blank pieces of watercolour paper in front of me, and 
nerves are high at that point. Charles, isn't that extraordinary? It's absolutely gorgeous. I'm full of respect for the talent that that, that unleashes and, and, and what, what the result must be on the page. And I'm going to be on top of your Twitter account all night. Oh, many thanks. Uh, how, though, are you going to tackle Norway with Give the Wolf a Banana and their extraordinary mm. outfits? Well, maybe they're easier. I mean, they're more art house. Maybe they're easier to draw than some of the acts. And when there are a lot of ballads, and you're talking about Spain, weren't you? When, when someone comes in a lot of feathers and is sort of just warbling, it's somehow difficult to make the painting interesting unless someone really likes that act. So they might be easier. Ukraine are going to be obviously going to smash it. Sam Ryder, he's got a beard. We're going to have to get used to (laughs) painting the beard. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. He's odds on second, isn't he, in this country? Which is extraordinary. We were talking about Ireland, and I know that there's um, there's been a lot of coverage of that, Charles. What are the papers saying about Ireland crashing out? That's right. There's a piece in today's Guardian that says, Ireland's Eurovision misery continues as it fails to qualify for 2022 contest. And what that refers to is not making it into the finals. And I guess, you know, as um, uh, Fernando Augusto was saying before, you know, a little bit perhaps on the lackluster side, and you hear that kind of coming through in the Guardian piece. Um, It's a piece that's rich with irony, of course, because for a British newspaper to be talking about the lack of success of another act when we are routinely at the very bottom of, of the list of performers year in and year out. Hopefully that changes this year. Um, there's, there's a tiny bit of, of, of schadenfreude, I think, in this. Um, bearing in mind, of course, that the UK qualifies automatically every year because it's a founding member of the European Broadcasting Union. Yeah. Sean, you've been a music journalist for years and mm. obviously you know a huge amount of, uh, about the subject. What is the enduring popularity of Eurovision? I think it's one word and it's camp. <laughs> some of the stuff wouldn't get in the charts. We know that, but somehow within the theatre of Eurovision it's allowed and it's celebrated it also has and I think weirdly after the pandemic as well it has this uniting force we're meant to be all against each other but actually there's something about the whole of Europe tuning in on a Saturday evening and watching the same things and going through the same things and some of them drinking quite a lot of wine I believe there's something that actually feels far more positive than it would have done maybe 10 years ago when the contest was a bit flat and that was it was seen as very naff. Somehow it's really relevant again. I think that's really exciting. Do you see it, Charles, as a big unifying moment for Europe? Um, it is. It's it's unifying in that it is a celebration. It's a festival. It's a great coming together. It's routinely in a fantastic city every year. Um, and you heard Fernando Augusto talk about all the people who are pouring into Turin. There's a lot of politics in Eurovision, and there's a lot of sort of you know um, cats under the carpet kind of kind of um, maneuvers during the voting. But since it all happens together and at the same time, we all sort of own it. Mm. But of course, one of the rules of Eurovision is that politics is not allowed to be involved. Well, yeah, tell that to the judges from Eastern Europe. You know, you may want to overlook that this year. Um, Sean, there's often a lot of block voting, though, isn't there? People people vote for their neighbours. I believe so. I mean, as, as we know, that's not really meant to happen. Um, you know, yeah, you're right. I mean, there's so much underlying political stuff. But, you know, with this veneer of, of sequins and glitters and, and glitter and people just having the most enormous amount of fun... Yes, yes, there is. There are all sorts of machinations going on underneath that. You were talking about Sam Ryder, of course, the, mm, the British yeah. entry. And I think, do you think that one of the reasons Britain's done so badly, in, particularly in the last sort of couple of years, is because of Brexit, Charles? Were people rejecting us because of that? Well, I think that in the early days, yes, there was a little bit of sort of, you know, you're no longer one of us, even though everyone needs to be reminded periodically that, you know, when we talk about the continent, we are on that continent. And when people talk about Europe, we are in Europe. 
Europe. We are just not in the European Union. Um, I think it's time for everyone to get over that, and and we'll see. It all rides on Sam Ryder. <laughs> okay, so Sean, now. Throw us forward. It's eight o'clock tonight mm-hmm. and you're sitting there and you've got all these blank pieces of yes. paper. How does this actually work in practice? Eurovision starts and... First act, I glance at the screen, go, oh my God, I've actually forgotten who the first act is, but I will have a look at the running order <laughs> and I get my pencil. <laughs> this is that simple, Jordine. I get a pencil and I draw it and then I colour it in and watercolour and hope for the best. And so by midway, I'm in my stride and it's really good, but it's, it is absolutely terrifying. But what buoys it up is obviously there's this huge Twitter lot of people going, hooray, ooh, fantastic, or what on earth is that? And that's the thing. When the donations come through, I'm checking the donations and that really, it really guides me through the, what I've created, my own mess. <laughs> it's nine years of doing this. Yeah. Well, what's wonderful, though, is that basically what you create is a, a sort of together online watch party. Yes, yes, I suppose it's something like that, yeah. And you can, I mean, the resources on my site, rawart.co.uk, you can see previous albums, um, photo albums of previous years, and you can see, you know, what's happened in the past. So you can see sort of how it all joins up in a weird way over the past few years. Yeah, and it does, some people do say they prefer watching Eurovision with live draw, that it wouldn't be the same without live draw. It's like, wow, <laughs> great. <laughs> do you have to put your hand into ice water at the end of the evening when from, from all of the brush I have to put my and... hand near a very large gym. And tonic. <laughs> well, now, now, now that's of course the other huge element of Eurovision is drinking. Why is it? Why is it always associated with drinking? Does it go back to Terry Wogan, who of course was the British commentator mm. for years and years and years, who famously said he wouldn't have a drink before the seventh act? <laughs> I think so, and it's it's that um, it's his legacy, isn't it? That we know that we're going to have a commentary that is it's not always totally warm towards the contestants can often be quite sort of kind kindly nudging them kindly taking the mickey out of them yeah. <laughs> do you see what I mean I'm trying to be nice but that's what Terry Wogan always did he was quite sarcastic um, and there's something about our British reserve it's cool it's a, and yet we'll have a drink and then we'll get into it and by, I say yeah by, by the 7th and of Everyone's course, the, the, the other thing that I really love is seeing the, uh, the the presenters from different countries because it's their tiny, tiny moment in the mm. global mm. spotlight, and it does get really over the top, doesn't it? They are also gorgeous, aren't they? All the time, you think, where do they come from? Why are you not our presenters? Some of the women are very well kept, aren't they? They, they certainly are, but it always feels a little bit kind of I don't know, shrill. <laughs> They might be trying a little bit too hard from <laughs> time to time. I mean, imagine they get their 30 seconds in the spotlight to announce their vote. And, and this is their moment because there are up to a billion people all around mm. the world and inside, the, inside Europe watching this. And I can imagine how terrified and how excited they are. I enjoy it because I think you can sort of sit on your sofa at home and you feel like you're traveling all around the world while this happens. Um, and I think that's one of the things that triggers a lot of the drinking. Yes. <laughs> but can you drink and draw? Um, it is possible, but um, you forget to drink in the end. You're so busy drawing. It's like it, it has just, yeah, I realised that I don't have time to do anything but gaze at a screen, get an idea of something, and then really, really quickly paint it. Sean, give us the details again of how people can give to to uh, to, to this and, and where the money's going to. Wonderful. Well, it is mainly followed on Twitter because it is chronological. So it's twitter.com slash... My username being Sian, S-I-A-N, 
underscore Superman, because that's my punk rock art name. <laughs> All the details are there. Just giving link for the British Red Cross Ukraine appeal is on my bio. So you can click on it and I will be repeating that throughout the day. Um, you can also buy me a coffee that goes towards the postage materials and that's all on there. So if you follow that, then you'll be in for a treat, I would hope. Absolutely. Well, thank you both uh, to Charles thank Hecker you. and to Sean Pattenden. Before that, we heard from Fernando Augusto Pacheco, who is actually in Turin for tonight's performance. And I'm quite sure we'll be checking in with him again in the morning once we know the results. Uh, I, I believe that um, uh, Tom Edwards and Carlotta Rebello, as well as Tyler Brule, will be joining us uh, tomorrow morning uh, to talk about the competition taking place tonight. So, Good luck with it all, Sean. I hope you make loads of money yes, for I hope Ukraine. We make loads of money. Uh, and uh, Charles, where are you going to be watching? Uh, from the comfort of my sofa, but with the, the music turned up to 100. Oh, gosh, I wish I could join. I'm actually going to the theatre. Oh. <laughs> what, what a letdown for the side, <laughs> huh? <laughs> you can always donate tomorrow. Yeah, that's true. My donations will be open. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you both very much indeed. And that's all for this edition of Monocle on Saturday. Thanks also to our studio engineer, Nora Holm. I'm Georgina Godwin, and Monocle on Saturday will return at the same time next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>